Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Slate's Political Gab Fest is sponsored by Squarespace. Start building your website today at Squarespace.com and enter offer code GABFEST at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. And by Sundance Now Doc Club, the new streaming service for everyone who loves documentaries. Discover unforgettable films like The Queen of Versailles, The Staircase, and The Weather Underground. To get a free 30-day trial, go to docclub.com slash gabfest. That's D-O-C-C-L-U-B dot com slash gabfest. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Slate Political Gab Fest for June 19th, 2015, the I Would Build a Great Wall edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. We have an all-Washington show today because to my right is John Dickerson of Face the Nation and Slate. Hello, John. Hello, David. And to my left is not Emily Bazelon, who is mysteriously somewhere else. I don't even know where she is. Not sure. Maybe she's writing a decision for Ruth Bader Ginsburg or something. But sitting in uh, for Emily is Jamel Bowie, staff writer of Slate. Hello, Jamel. Hello, David. It's great to have you back on the Gabfest. I'm always excited to be here. And then I'll say, and we're always excited to have you. And then you say, and I'm always excited to be here. <laughs> and then 45 <laughs> minutes of that. <laughs> on this week's Gabfest, the massacre at Emanuel Church. What? I don't know. God. I mean, who? Whatever. God, it's just we'll we'll find something to say that isn't just me giving exclamation points. Then we'll talk about uh, Jeb Bush's presidential campaign launch and how it was overshadowed by Donald Trump and whether his whole campaign is going to be overshadowed by Donald Trump. Then we'll also talk about another another campaign spoiler, Bernie Sanders, the crotchety old socialist who is stirring up a slumbering Democratic race. We will have cocktail chatter and Slate Plus. What are we going to do? Are we gonna, doing? We're doing what, if anything, can we learn from the bizarre Rachel, say her last name for me. I've been saying Dolezal. Rachel Dolezal scandal. Scandal, in quotes. Before we get started with the show, just a reminder, we have a live show at 6th and I on July 29th. And you can get tickets at slate.com slash gabfestdc. It's uh, Wednesday, July 29th. Just there are a few tickets left. It's going to be a great show. Come on out get tickets and we'll also have some cocktails before the show and we will ticket that separately soon i think we have a venue we just need to get it all sorted out as we tape on thursday afternoon authorities in north carolina have arrested dylan roof who is the suspect in the massacre of nine people at emmanuel ame church in charleston on wednesday night roof who is white reportedly sat for an hour in a prayer meeting at an african-american church and then at the end pulled out a gun made some various racist statements, according to witnesses, or the witness who survived, and then shot and killed all but one or or two of the people who were there. I believe two, right? Yeah. The victims included a state senator who was the pastor at the church. And, you know, I I don't even know where to go with this. 
Well, you know, when I when I first heard about it last night, I guess it was around 9 p.m. when news started to break, I immediately thought, I mean, I grew up in an Amy church um, in Virginia Beach. My parents go to an Amy church outside Charleston. They don't go to this church, but sort of like the world of Amy churches in the Charleston area, something I'm very familiar with with so i kind of just felt sick all night because it's just sort of i don't know any of these people or or anything but i sort of know i know what a wednesday night bible study at an amy church looks like because i've been to one from there and this is more this morning i sort of immediately thought and as we learned about sort of this kid and sort of his motivations he in his facebook photo he's wearing a jacket with patches from apartheid south africa and rhodesia which is like some intense hipster racism um, not like hipster racism in the thing that exists, but sort of like a hipster for race. I don't know. Just it's it's like a deep cut of of racism. And I just yeah. Be- you mean it's not just like a hobby with him, right? Right. right. He's really like he's really getting deep. But is that a? Your- th- I mean, I was wondering though. It is. It's those are some strange freaking symbolism to wear those is that a, are those patches things that actually that's a, racists that's, do wear that's like a storm front that, if you're a storm like a, front right, you wear right. that that's sort of uh because you know you if you if you are wearing a confederate battle flag or obviously a swastika like that that gives away the game but people don't necessarily recognize the flags of apartheid south africa and rhodesia now zimbabwe and so if you wear those and someone recognizes it it's very much sort of like uh we see each other right um, it's a club you're in right and I just sorry, I thought back to the church arsons in South Carolina in, in the 90s, obviously back to sort of the, a very long history of terrorism against black churches and how in this, you know, really sixth sense, if you were a, a white supremacist eager to do symbolic violence on, on black people, the church is kind of a perfect target. In part, it has, it's such a central, even now, it's just central institution in black communities. And this church in particular, right? This church right. is the, the church of Denmark Vesey. Right. This is a, a historic a, church. It's the second AME church in the United States. It was the largest AME congregation outside of Philadelphia for a long time. Um, AME, for listeners who don't know, uh, stands for African Methodist Episcopal. It was a church founded in 1816 by Methodists in Philadelphia who were protesting segregation and racism in the local Methodist churches. And it's sort of the, one of the first American denominations founded by African-Americans. And I think the only one founded not for theological disputes, but for very sociological disputes. Like there ought not be uh, race separation in the worship of God. So, I, I didn't know. I mean, this is a completely non-Germane point, but I didn't. This is a pre-Civil War black church in South Carolina. I didn't realize yes. that the Slave owners allowed churches, that they allowed institutions to exist at all. Well, it's interesting. You had in uh, Charleston at the period a large population of free blacks and of uh, blacks who had bought their formerly slaves, who had bought their freedom. You had a few enslaved blacks in these churches, but it was mostly part of the free population of Charleston. Um, and this church was founded basically under the, under similar circumstances as the Amy Church in Philadelphia. A shoemaker named Morris Brown got kind of fed up with racism <laughs> and it was like hey we're going to start our own church and within a couple of years it became the dominant church for blacks in the area which is sort of how Denmark VC for instance could begin his conspiracy because he or conspiracy to free other other blacks because it had such deep roots to the local community you can kind of organize you can preach you can do all these things John the shooter used a gun it may have been a gun he was given as a hand a handgun he was given as a present for his sure. 21st birthday we don't know that yet it is clear, like we've had this conversation a hundred times, just confirm. This will not prompt a change in how we view guns 
or a change in what the, the, the law about guns is in this country, correct? It won't, I think, in part because the facts are – well, we don't know what all the facts are. First, that's the first point. The facts we do know make the, the case complex. So, And the most striking thing to me is, you know, a church is a sanctuary. People go there for comfort and for, you know, stability from – everything outside the church. That's one thing. But a Bible study and the fellowship of a Bible study is like a small sanctuary within a sanctuary that he sat there for an hour. This is some intense fellowship. So it's not just religion and the scripture, but it's people helping each other out in a small, intimate room. Like it's, it's about as intimate as religion can get, except maybe in the confessional. And that you could sit through an hour of that and then kill the people you had just heard say all these things and go through all these things is a is a level of evil that goes beyond just a, a random shooting. It's really, really, really dark. And, I, and the reason I mention all of that is that somebody who is that dark, who is premeditated, I mean, this was an, I don't see how there's any way in which, and maybe somebody smart will point this out, but this is an act of terrorism. It was an act in which he thought it through at, considerable length. I mean, he drove, I guess, two hours from where he lived or something. Um, He sat there for an hour and was undeterred by what he heard. He then killed enough people but left one who could then go tell the story. All because of, it's, it seems reasonable to conclude, both from what Jamel said about the apartheid stickers he was wearing or, or, or emblems he was wearing, but also his car had a Confederate States of America flag on the front license plate. And what we know from his friends who have talked about his casual racist jokes, all of that means that this guy could very easily also have just blown up the church. In other words, the fact that a gun was at the ready he seemed committed enough to violence and in a spare, very specific political way to send a message that the vehicle he used in this case could have been could have been anything. You know, I don't I guess I don't agree with that final conclusion is that if you make guns harder to get, fewer people will commit gun crimes. And there's that, no, that and may be true. And that may or may not be true. But I'm, what I'm saying is the facts of this case don't. And he didn't he, bomb it. He shot a lot of people with a gun right, because he but had I, a gun. I guess my point is he he seemed to be the person, a kind of person who was evil enough to get over the hurdles of gun laws or, you know, plastic explosive laws or whatever. Um, right. For someone with that kind of intensity, it is hard to imagine the, the policy barrier you could raise short of just sort of outlawing anything you could possibly use to create a weapon. Because if not, if not guns, then someone like this, someone who can, again, like John said, sit in a prayer circle with a group of people for an hour and then kill them. If they had a knife, I'm sure he would stab. If he had a knife, I'm sure he would stab them. I'm sure he would try to build a bomb if that were what he wanted. It's to very do. hard to kill nine people with a knife. True. Very hard. It's it's certainly true. And, and, and it's so, hard to build a bomb. I, I, th- I think, I think this, the stronger case might be there's a public policy solution to reducing the mortality of an event like this, but not necessarily to preventing the event itself. Right. In other words, we don't know what kind of weapon he had, but a one that could limit the amount of rounds you could fire off. And Although it, if it's a handgun, that seems, in other words, the number of uh, rounds reloaded, in a clip. Right. I don't know if he reloaded. I think he, they said he, he reloaded. Yeah. One of you just used the word terrorism. Is that a helpful word? Because you think that this is – when there's white on black violence of this sort, the word hate crime has come up. Terrorism is a seems to be something we – reserve for for Muslims these days, would it be helpful to use 
terrorism in this case. What caused me to go there was just that he's he it wasn't the hate crime. He obviously he had intent to harm people because of the color of their skin. But the fact that he left one alive in order to tell there was a political valence. Right. And the place he did it. And the place he did it was very clearly picked. So I think in that sense, the extent to which he wanted to use violence to send a political message, I think, isn't that the definition? Right. The facts of the case, this particular, there are a lot of AME churches in Charleston, South Carolina. So if it just was, I want to kill some black people, then he could have found, you know, any place to do that. But this particular church, maybe on this particular day, which is the anniversary of when Charleston officials uncovered Denmark BC's plot, which is a uh, that, that sounds coincidental. I don't. That sounds. I, I don't, that sounds I, deeply coincidental. May, maybe it's maybe maybe it's coincidental that this guy killed a bunch of people on the anniversary of Denmark VC's plot at the church Denmark VC went to. But I don't know. Part of the idea of a hate crime and implicit in it is that that's it's not just motivated by hate, but it sends a message, right? That like hate crimes are hate crimes because they intimidate other people of the same class. I, I sort of see that in terrorism is kind of being on a continuum. And so this is sort of just like the far end of that continuum. And when you look at the history of terrorism in the United States, which, you know, Muslim terrorism in the United States is very, very recent. The actual tradition of terrorism in this country is anti-black terrorism, going back to Reconstruction to the present. And so in that in that context, it just seems like terrorism is natural. This is what terrorism right. looks like in the United States for the most part. Right. How And how as a public policy matter, how do you discredit or make ridiculous young neo-Nazi kids? How do you how do you make this guy out to be something pathetic and lame and ridiculous rather than him emboldening other young disaffected white people? I mean, I think this goes back to this particular form of white racism among young men. If you're a young working class white guy, things are a lot harder than they were 50 years ago. And this kind of violence and this kind of hatred is a is a much easier out than it maybe it was when you had a real job at a real place and i wonder like we're not going back to the economy that we had in 1960 what is it that would that public as a matter of public policy that we do to change this i don't know i mean the trends that would produce this sort of uh virulent racism aren't going away because it's not just a changing economy it's the fact that the united states is becoming, at the very least, much more cosmopolitan and multicultural. Whether or not that means it becomes browner is sort of a separate question. But the facts are just there. This is a country that can elect an African-American president comfortably. So in that world, I think you're going to always have this kind of discontent. And I'm not sure in a society like ours, you can prevent it. I think what you can do and what police in uh, South Carolina and North Carolina have done is they didn't shoot this guy when they saw him, right? They arrested him. He will be questioned. He will be charged. He will face a judge. And in that entire process of facing the legal system, he is not martyred, right? He, he's not He's not a martyr now. He is a criminal who will be treated like a criminal. Right. John, do you think there are any clothes on this? Are there any political ramifications from this shooting? I, I don't know. I was – I'm still processing the president's remarks – and when he, after the Newtown shootings, when he did not mention guns, I wrote a piece at the time saying, you know, the wound for those 22 families was incredibly raw. And they were still going through the shock of learning about their children. And so to to immediately politicize it as a gun debate did, I thought, two things in that case. One, it stamped out the 
the focus, which should be on those families and those kids in that initial moment. And secondly, it was a um, it was a ready kind of thing to grab to make meaning out of this when in a protracted debate over gun control, if that's what you believe in, the passion needs to be sustained. And what always happens is there's a lot of hot passion at the beginning and then it's, and it doesn't sustain. So the argument I made at the time was, you know, the people who wanted immediately for the president to talk about guns, you know, they need to sustain their anger and passion for months and months and months because that's the, this is going to be a long legislative battle for the people who believed in that position. So now in this case, the president came out and spoke about guns right away in his remarks. And we'll see if, that moves the focus of this conversation from the victims, the people who died, to um, you know something into a conversation about guns. In which case, what happens to the victims? We we rightly want to not celebrate the shooter in this case, and nevertheless, in a lot of the coverage, he'll be talked about a lot, and the victims and the people who died won't be talked about. And so now the political conversation blots them out too. So I was I don't know. Uh, I think politically, the president's not going to get anywhere by having mentioned guns. I mean, he didn't before after Newtown, and it's not going to change now. Is this going to? Is anyone going to use this as the, as evidence of a attack on Christianity? I think Fox News already is. I feel like Rick Santorum said this was a religious liberty issue, which is I'm not even like outraged. It's just kind of dumb. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, how does that work? How is it a what that this was an anti-religious attack? Well, if, yeah. it, if yeah. this had been at a white church, so it was. If yeah. it had been at a white church. And a Muslim sure. shoots up a white church. Yeah. It would have been like perceived immediately as this is an anti-religious, right? Anti-Christian. But, but that's because thing. the symbols would have been. I mean, in your hypothetical, the the Muslim would have chosen to pick a church full of Christians as his main attack point. But here you had a racist picking. But he a black picked to pick. He picked. You can you, you can find nine African Americans in other places besides a church. Oh, but again, but I think going back to Jamal's initial point of the historical. Power And I want – Jamel, is there more on that, which is that – I mean, obviously, the original attacks on, on black worship was an attempt to steal something, really go to write – like pull out the heart. It's not just killing somebody. It's – again, it's terrorism. Right. It's you're trying to steal the thing that gives structure in their life and, the, and particularly for a class of people who've been subjugated. If, if religion is the one thing that gets you through the day, you're trying to destroy even that. I mean, I mean it, it's really hard to overstate the centrality of the black church is sort of African-American communities through history. And I think it's central to black communities in a way that's a bit unique, in part because for so much of American history, there were no, it wasn't just that there weren't any other places for kind of civic engagement. There weren't any other places where blacks could essentially hold middle-class professions, like encourage leadership, like sort of, it's totally predictable and not an accident that the civil rights leadership uh, in the 50s and 60s were preachers and teachers because those were the two institutions through which people were educated and could engage in their communities. The GAFest is sponsored by Squarespace this week. Thank you, Squarespace. Squarespace, as you know, allows you to design beautiful, professional-looking, easy-to-use, easy-to-navigate, easy-to-build websites, regardless of how skilled you are. If you are the most abject person with technology. If you have plots-level technological incapacity, you can still build a beautiful, useful site using Squarespace. There's no coding required. It's incredibly intuitive. The tools are simple. But the sites themselves, once you have built them so easily, have state-of-the-art technology. They're secure. They're stable. They're responsive. 
which means they work great on mobile, tablet, desktop. They have e-commerce solutions built in, and they're they're trusted by millions of people and some of the most respected brands in the world. It starts at just $8 a month. You get a free domain if you sign up for a year. And, of course, we have a special offer. When you start a free trial today, no credit card required at squarespace.com. And when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, you can use the offer code GABFEST to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Jeb, that's J-E-B, exclamation point. Is it that or is it Jeb? <laughs> well, you have a slightly higher voice than me, so oh. it's always going to be like, you, let's, all right, we'll each do it. One, two, three. Jeb! <laughs> Did you do it, Jamal? I, I didn't do it. I was just supposed to do it. Yeah, you're supposed to do it. Okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. One, two, three. Jeb! <laughs> he rocked political America this week with his surprise announcement that he was running for president. And so did Donald <laughs> Trump. They were kind of polar opposite announcements. One was, they were both megalomaniacal in their own way. Jeb was very, certainly was not shy about touting his own record. But he was, as you would expect, he was he was conservative, straightforward, methodical, reasonable man, a very, very traditional political presentation, a nice the multicultural America behind him, bunch in Spanish. Trump's was, of course, loony and megalomaniacal. I didn't measure this, but John, it felt like Trump's announcement got more coverage than Jeb's did. Probably. Um, it certainly got more. Facebook has been keeping track of the number of likes and views and so forth. And he he was at Hillary Clinton levels in the four millions of I can't remember what the four million count is, whether but um, he was well ahead of everybody else. Trump was your point about the similarities between the two of them. I think there there are a lot of ways in which the modern presidential candidate in becoming a candidate actually starts to live a life. That's a lot like Donald Trump as a civilian. You go around to places where your name is plastered all over the room. <laughs> you start talking in the first person about yourself all the time and how great you are. Uh-huh. You're ne- you never admit any mistakes. And you um, schmooze with wealthy people all the time. So in that sense, you become like Donald Trump. But the crucial thing, the crucial <laughs> distinction between the normal megalomaniacal behavior of a candidate – and right, we should go back and remember that the founders – they said you don't campaign for president because to campaign is to suggest that your ambition ambition is above the people's. And so for a long time, campaigning was seen as a gross kind of grubbing and it showed that you lacked the key virtue for the presidency, which was modesty. Now, enter Donald Trump. What makes him different than the normal candidate who is immodest is that the normal candidate is immodest in the service of presumably a platform and set of ideas. Donald Trump is the platform. He is the idea. He is the end point. Through other candidates, they are the conveyance to a series of solutions for people. Donald Trump is a conveyance unto himself. It is a circular train that goes around the Christmas tree. It is like it is only in and of himself and to and to be the brand and promote the brand. And I think that's the difference between the self-love that's a part of our normal politics that is irritating and the like escape velocity of self-love that he is engaged right. and in. And so to look for to look for an ideology or to look for consistency of views or to look for any kind of thought on issues is to misunderstand Trump. Like I it think that's, it's, ju- it's just, I think that's right. I think that's, I think that's right. And I think also there's a, there's a, I mean, it's a tough thing to, what do you do about this, this person? I mean, it, here's the reason why he shouldn't be taken seriously is well, all the normal reasons, but then there is a majority of Republicans who, who, actively do not want him to be president. I mean, just on the just merits alone, he is never going to be president. People dislike him intensely in the party he's trying to get the nomination for, and all of his behavior 
is only going to make that worse. In the same way that we didn't treat Jeb Bush seriously when he said he, he wasn't sure whether he's going to be a presidential candidate or not, right? He told Bob Schieffer, he says, I hope I'll be running for president. That's like me saying, I hope I'll be on the gab fest today. It was a, and so we should have treated that in a silly fashion, right? He was running for president. He just hadn't declared it. I think the reverse can also be true. When somebody runs for president, if we don't think they have a serious chance of making it, we don't have to treat it as a serious presidential campaign. Well, but what, does that mean... Would you say the same thing about Ben Carson? Would you say the same thing about Bobby Jindal? Would you say the same thing the, about Carly Fiorina, if they had or John a track, Kasich? If they had a track record of gaming the system, of faking uh, to build their brand, to get them their TV show, to you know get their properties in the news, if it wasn't such a, a brand marketing process and hadn't in several previous cycles been that. And by the way, also done things like, I mean, we forget that he was the chief birther uh, in the United States. I mean, just on the, the merits alone, his policies such as they are and his beliefs don't stand up to reason. And at some point, you have to actually test whether the things people say are reasonable. I know we don't do that a lot in presidential campaigns, but we should try to. Given the rules of the campaign, Jamel, and the debate rules, Trump is almost certainly going to be in the early debates, assuming he actually proceeds with his candidacy. What is the impact that it's going to have on other candidates, on the race itself, on on America. I'm not so certain he he would get up in the I guess the polling range to get on that main stage in part because there's just so many people, right? Like He's there now. Is he now? Yeah. Oh. oh yeah. Well, well uh, at the moment, I mean in the polls you mean he could, yeah. Okay. Not, well, I mean you you need, you need about 3% to be top 10. Oh, well. In in which case, uh <laughs> <laughs> I think if I were Scott Walker, Mark Rubio, Jeb Bush, if I were even, you know, Chris Christie, Rand Paul or whatever, I would be really upset that Jeb Bush was, I mean, not not Jeb Bush, but that uh, Donald Trump was up there in large part because he's going to say crazy things and he's going to occasionally voice something that is resonant with Republican voters. And then you're going to have to answer it. And it's just going to be a bad look saying something like, well, you know, Donald, I think it's a good point. We should, in fact, build a wall across the United States, right? That's just not going to look good. And that effort to box Trump out to avoid losing any potential support or to avoid putting yourself in the position where you could get knocked out um, is going to just lead to otherwise credible candidates saying ridiculous things. Yeah, my, I'm, to, your, to your point, my mother-in-law and father-in-law, who are not that political, but they both – I was staying with them on Tuesday night and they were so excited that Trump was there and they said every word of his speech was amazing and, you know, quoted that line about building a wall back back at me. Either they can try to ignore him, in which case they're going to be asked about it and they're either going to have to they're going to have to respond like, do you want to build the wall? Do you not want to build the wall? Or they, they if they if there's a kind of concerted campaign to keep him out, it's going to look bad. People are not going to people are. I do think, you know, that's ungenerous or something on. um on the Facebook, I asked uh, readers to kind of try. What I was finding was that people responded to Trump in the way that he responds to things, which is he has a kind of a guttural reaction, like, I'm going to be the best jobs president that God ever created. Right. And ISIS won't know what hit him. Like, it's a lot of, like, super macho. And um, that guttural response is what people usually were giving in response to him. And so I was, I s- said, can somebody articulate why they don't like him because I thought what I'd hoped was that in trying to articulate why they thought he shouldn't be in the presidential race, it would tell us something about the race. And one of the smartest things that was written 
was about how, you know, his clownishness. Well, I mean, one thing, first of all, if people think the presidential campaign is a circus, like it, the fact that people say he's a clown. And I, when I say people, I mean, lots of conservative writers have have written him off as just a clownish figure. But if people don't think the process has any merit, why not have a clown in it? Like, at least it makes it entertaining. But he displaces a lot of conversation. I mean, he and the conversation we're supposed we're to be having, about right? Yes, right. Exactly. Well, there we are. I proved it. Right. And that's that's a so that was a, a, a good so, articulation. But so who does that that damages who that damages does that damage that doesn't damage the front whoever the front runner is because the front runner wants to displace conversation because they uh, wants do, to float. It damages it damages anybody who's trying to make a point that's serious and anybody who's trying to listen for a point that's serious. I guess it doesn't whether whether regardless of where who it helps and hurts in the in the horse race. But I think you could argue come could come totally out the other end and say. If he's saying these things that are riling people up, it becomes incumbent upon other candidates to actually stand up and articulate. This is where I was trying to go with that. Now, thank you for getting me back on track. Articulate why he's why he's crazy. Like, to, and and that would like push them into more specificity, perhaps about some things that they weren't prepared to be specific about yet. Let's let's talk a, a bit about Jeb. It sounded in his announcement that he really he's trying to not. It sounds like he's trying to knock Rubio out. Really, mm-hmm. that he he really talked about the executive experience, the the need to have someone who's who's done something, which is not Walker is somebody who's done something who has the executive experience. Rubio, Rubio fits in that category. So is it is his play like I knock I knock Rubio out, I knock Russia out of the war, and then <laughs> I can take out the rest of Western Europe. I, I <laughs> that's a, that's a, that's, a, that's an interesting analogy. Uh, so I sort of see Rubio as being in the position that. Bushes sometimes are in presidential election contests, which is they're always the second choice of everyone in the field. No one, I don't think Rubio is the first choice of of, of that many people, but he is a plausible second choice for everyone. And so I think Bush wants to knock out that plausible second choice such that it's either me or Walker um, or me or less likely Rand Paul. Uh, I mean, he's not worried about Christie. I don't think he's worried about Kasich. He, he thinks, and I think he credibly thinks this that he can be the the guy to unite all factions but rubio also kind of is that guy too and so he is the one to deal with because that they're really in competition with each other whereas walker has i think the different problem of having to say to social conservatives listen i am at least plausible to the people jeb is trying to attract and also i'm way more competent at this than all these other guys that you may think are cool so you want you want me and if you come with me then we we can win this thing and i think that's actually quite right but and so how does he knock out rubio well, I think he does. He has to do two things. One, he has to um, keep focusing on this this idea of executive experience, as you talked about. And he he did it a lot. And he basically said, you know, you have to make decisions. You can't just give a speech and call it a victory. And then I think he has to hope that Rubio falls of his own callowness. And that's a little bit of a harsh word to use. But basically that he walks into that caricature. So what the caricature Bush is painting is untested you know, hasn't had to make tough decisions. And then he hopes that he looks that way when he gets out onto the stage because he's not going to beat him on the other pitch he was making. He was making two pitches, the sort of knock the senators out pitch, which the I'm a governor, governor, I've made decisions. And the look at my crowd, it doesn't look like a Republican crowd pitch, which um, 
seems like a crass um, shortening of what he was doing. Except that's basically what Bush said when he got to New Hampshire. Is he was talking to the audience and he said, you know, look at my crowd. It didn't look like a normal Republican crowd. He sort of he got into the process a little more than you're maybe supposed to. Um, <laughs> you're supposed to let people come to that conclusion and you're themselves. But that's his pitch against Walker, which is like. And I was a successful governor in a, in a purple state, successful meaning I was a conservative governor who got stuff passed in a purple state. But I also am able to reach out to different kinds of communities. And also there was a big push for women in his announcement speech. He talked about the violence against women legislation he'd passed. He talked about school choice. There was a wonderful part of his video where a young African-American woman said, you know, I have a future because I was able to pick the school I went to. That's not just about making the Republican Party look different. That's about trying to make inroads against Hillary Clinton with women for the general election. Now, whether whether that's possible, who knows? But his argument to Republicans is, I'm the only one who can make those inroads, not the other governors in the race. Can, can I add real quick that I think going for Bush in this is that he he can essentially make the argument, listen, our last president, our current president was a young senator, young charismatic senator. It would be awfully weird and hypocritical for of us to then choose one of those guys for this next round. And it's funny how much Bush's pitch against Rubio looks and sounds a lot like Hillary's against right. Obama's. Yes. It, it's in fact, I think, I think, you know, everyone's trying to find who will be the Obama against Hillary. I don't think there really is one right now, but I think that dynamic exists in the Republican field right now. Right. Right. The one last question on this I have for you, John, is when we were talking about Jeb Bush's potential campaign, this is probably a year ago. Yeah. One of the things that we talked about and you raised is that here's a guy who has been has not run for office for 13 years. Right. Right. How is he doing? Like, does he seem comfortable? Does yeah. it seem like he's good at it? Does he any you know, he was running in a pre-internet age effectively. Now right. he's. Does, does it seem like he, he's mastered the vernacular? Well, it's yes and no. So he, he got out of the gate very fast. He forced play. He got Mitt Romney kind of all wound up and, and then confused in terms of, you know, he, he pushed he pushed in first. Romney said, oh, I'm going to be in. And then, oh, I'm not, you know. And so he was making his own moves in a way that was changing the field. So that was that's hard to do. And he did that. And he, you know, supposedly is doing that in the fundraising sector. So he's knocking out or he's grabbing the fundraisers who had in the past supported, were thinking about supporting Romney or we're going to support um, Chris Christie. So in that sense, hasn't run in 13 years, but did that pretty well. His announcement, just as an act of theater, was probably the best I've seen. Now, having said that, I haven't been to all of them, but it was better, I think, than Hillary Clinton's on um, Roosevelt Island, and Hillary Clinton's was pretty well done. And that's meaningless, except that it's an organizational challenge. It's like you gotta, you have to have a structure in place that gets the balloons, that gets the people there in the middle of the day, that gets the prompter far enough away that it's not picked up in the camera shot, but so that the candidates can still read it. You sit everybody around. When I was there, I got there quite early, and the advanced guys were moving these poor senior citizens who were in an area uh, of one one area of the, the uh, auditorium into another where there was a hole and because they, they didn't want the hole to show up on the cameras. Now, it turned out in the end the place was packed, so they didn't really have to do it. And then when there would be applause lines or even lines that weren't didn't really seem to me to require that much applauding, staffers were clapping. You know, there's this thing where if you're a staffer, you're taught to like clap a certain way so it makes a lot of noise and then that's contagious. So it sounds like you've got a roaring crowd. Jab. This is Jeb. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> yeah, but clapping. they were clapping like with the power to smash a walnut. I mean, it was incre- so anyway, my point is down to the smallest little detail. And the only reason that's important is it is a sign of some organizational. Now, there's the other side, which is that he had a 
organizational and is in the middle of still an organizational bit of uproar, putting in a new campaign manager. I think that might have been a little overstated, but it's definitely happening. So there's some organizational difficulties there. And then finally, he had a, I mean, an abysmal answer to the question everybody in America could have guessed he was going to be asked, which is about what he learned from the Iraq war. So that's a, that's a bit of a downside, too. So pros and cons. All right. This episode of The GabFest is brought to you by Sundance Now Doc Club. A new streaming service for everyone who loves documentaries like me. If you like real stories, real people in extraordinary situations, or love to learn about the world around you, you will love the Sundance Now Doc Club. Doc Club brings a human voice back to movie recommendations. Unlike other services, the documentary films are handpicked by expert programmers with unique perspectives or by cultural icons like Ira Glass or Susan Sarandon. Or us, me. I did some picking. Doc Club's library of documentaries includes incredible stories of all types, including crime, history, politics, music, and sex. There are a lot of sex documentaries there, which I none of which I had seen. So that shows where I was not picking. I don't know if Ira Glass picked all the sex ones or somebody else did. It wasn't me. As a Sundance Now Doc Club member, you also get exclusive benefits like free movie tickets, access to film festivals, award shows, and more. I picked a whole bunch of documentaries. I talked about um, The Queen of Versailles, which is just an amazing one. But one which I love is uh, Bill Cunningham's New York. I've been spending a lot of time in New York. And Bill Cunningham's New York is this really sweet documentary about this guy, Bill Cunningham, who's a photographer for The New York Times. Mostly he takes – he does fashion photography of women on the street of New York. And he he's this incredible character who bikes around the city. He's probably 90 now. He bikes around the city and just takes pictures and – He's lovely and he knows everybody and is beloved by everyone. And this documentary is its a great slice of, a, of New York fashion, a great slice of a, a kind of real idiosyncratic, wonderful character. I strongly recommend it. And for our audience members, Sundance Now Doc Club is offering a free 30-day trial to give you the chance to try out the service. Get your free 30-day trial at docclub.com slash gabfest. That's D-O-C-C-L-U-B dot com slash gabfest bernie sanders independent senator vermont has brought some thrills to the democratic primary campaign sanders who is 73 years old he's an irritable socialist is running the progressive campaign that liberals have been longing for he's launched a full-throated attack on the billionaire class on the inequality that is sapping the country on climate change denial on the devastation of unions on the shrunken minimum wage on untrammeled free trade you know, I, I had not been paying much attention to him. Then I read a little bit about him and watched some interviews, and I was so taken. It was so exciting. With Elizabeth Warren not in the race and Martin O'Malley being the most boring candidate in America, this is the, the challenge to Hillary Clinton that I think a lot of people have been so so anticipating and excited about. So how is it playing, Jamel? I think it's playing very well. I think lefty liberals are – very excited to have Sanders putting these things out here, in part because Sanders is, you know, he's a sitting senator, he's a longtime House member. Hillary's going to have to debate him, otherwise she just looks bad. And in those debates, um, she'll have to answer questions Sanders puts to her. And in those answers, if Hillary can't quite finesse it the right way, she'll all of a sudden create a situation where she has made promises to people and people will try to hold her accountable. And that's a very powerful thing. That's sort of the value of having 
a challenger. And also it forces uh, Hillary to sort of begin to develop better answers to questions that she uh, may not want to answer. And so, again, having that challenger there is important. I will say I don't think Sanders is playing to win necessarily. I think Sanders is self-consciously because he doesn't attack Hillary. Notice he, he never he never goes after her. He never like presses her on, you know, something like the Clinton cast stuff. He He's very much there, I think, to attempt to pressure her with Elizabeth Warren working the outside game. I, I would say Warren is not running, but she's still very much a part of this race. The two of them trying to pinch Clinton into adopting more left-wing positions on economic issues. Yeah, the thing that struck me is that reading Sanders' positions is is how much that he's talking about things that Clinton has elided. Clinton is picking some progressive things to focus on. And she'll focus some on immigration. She'll focus on sort of LGBT issues, talk about inequality in, in, in pretty nonspecific terms. But he is really getting on the climate right. change stuff, really getting on inequality in a very specific intense way. I expect Sanders to ask Hillary something like, do you support a financial transactions tax? And that's Mm -hmm. that's that's a tough question because that potentially alienates people that Hillary wants and needs for her candidacy. And that's right. And I think that that based on the conversations with them, they the pressure is paying off and it will it will push her to embrace things like a financial transaction tax. Now, it's interesting. Sanders uses his financial transaction tax. And what this is basically is it's an attempt to keep financial institutions from making money off of the churn, basically doing lots, having lots and lots of activity, short, lots of big short trades and creating volatility in the market that ends up perhaps making more money for the financial institutions, but creating volatility in the market that hurts regular people or that causes economic fibrillations. So if you make it, if you add that tiny tiny little penny tax to each of these rapid transactions, it creates money and Sanders wants to put it towards infrastructure. That's one idea. And there are other plans, though, that Clinton is going to use, which will either put that money into other baskets or she'll, she's also got a plan or is thinking about embracing a plan where the deduction that CEOs are allowed to take for non-salary compensation, so for bonuses, there's a, already a cap on the deduction you could take for salary you get. I think it's at a million dollars. So if you pay a CEO over a million dollars, you can't deduct that salary you're sending to him. So what then companies did is they just started giving the CEOs bonuses and other kinds of non-salary compensation to get around that rule. So the idea would be to tax that non-salary compensation at the very high level unless a company shows that it's uh, distributed its income growth more evenly across the company. So there would be some formula that would show, okay, well, we raised wages 5% for all employees. And if you did that, then you would be allowed to deduct that non-salary compensation for your CEO. So it's it's a, it's a an interesting idea, I think, molded on one that Chris Van Hollen, the uh, congressman from from Maryland who's running for the Senate in Maryland, proposed. And I think all of that is probably being, if not forced, she's being forced to come up with this. She's definitely being forced to kind of move faster with it because of Sanders. Do the Hillary people see Sanders as good for them because he's creating excitement and debate? Or do they see this as, oh, man, this is like weakening us. It looks like we might lose something. I I don't. This is a guess. I haven't put that specific question to somebody. I think it's a guess based on some reporting, which is 
if she, if Sanders is considered a credible enough opponent and she is seen to have beaten him in a credible set of contests, then it will be good for her and helpful because then the coronation was not a coronation. It was an actual she, – she won by putting forward ideas and there's a marketplace for those ideas and she won in that fight and therefore she comes with a certain kind of validation from the process. And given all the headaches she's had from basically – and certainly the Republican attack is that she thinks she's just owed this job. It probably doesn't hurt in that regard. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I'd say that the Clinton team is probably pleased to see Sanders polling so well in New Hampshire. Not so well that Clinton necessarily will lose, but well enough that it seems like uh, he's he's polling like 31% to Clinton's 41%, which is like, those are good numbers. Right, but is there any universe in which Bernie Sanders, who is very old, who's like from Vermont, who is who is a who's not a great campaigner and not not beloved, in which he's perceived as an actual threat, and that her victory is is as though she has vanquished a, a real tribune of the Democratic Party. Well, you it know, seems to, I don't see how that ever happened. I, I don't think that's the case, but I do think <laughs> the thing about the Obama Clinton contest back in two thousand eight wasn't just that it was exciting, but because it, it pretty much involved every single state in the country, it was a tremendous opportunity for both candidates to meet people, to organize, to do sort of this ground level work that would pay off in a general. And if Sanders can kind of like keep up, you can get sort of, sort of the same thing out of it. Like that's that's helpful. And, and I'll say this, and this seems like a tautology, but I think it's true. People don't ever seem presidential until they eventually do. And if Sanders is like polling really well, then all of a sudden Sanders will seem like someone... <laughs> No, no, seriously. No, will never seem president. Bernie no, Sanders I, is great. I, I, I think what, what Jamel says is right. And, and I mean, this may never get tested because he'll never be. Right. But there are lots. You know, everybody thinks of uh, Bill Clinton favorably as a politician now. But there was a long stretch where he was seen as unpresidential, as an amateur. Now, I'm not uh, Bernie Sanders and Bill Clinton are not the same people. But the phenomenon that Jamel identifies does exist. And so. Uh, but I don't think I don't think it's going to happen with Bernie Sanders. But I think it will be in the Clintons' interest to, once she's vanquished him, to make it look like a real vanquishing. Also, you said he's not beloved. I mean, he's not beloved in the sense that you know the Bernie Sanders life-size huggable plushy doll is flying off the shelves. But a politician who is earnest and honest and authentic is like a cool dry glass of water to most of these people because they care. They this is These are the people, and God love them, who think the process is important and want stuff to change, and they're the ones who get the most irritated at um, Donald Trump. They're, you know, they're the ones who believe in actual wrestling, and so when the worldwide wrestling people come in and call it a real sport, they're the ones who are most deeply offended. That's, that's fair. And that's so those, fair. those yeah. people really, and they are fantastic. I mean, they, they're analog on the right, too, and these are people who like still believe in the process, and so for them to be excited is a, it is a genuine, I think, kind of excitement. And, and don't over, don't underestimate the appeal of the irascible old man who speaks truths. I mean, Ron Paul is kind of a right-wing icon for a reason. I think people, I think people get into that. Right, right. Yeah, I also, I think you could someday in 40 or 50 years be the irascible old man I mean, who tells I truth. Be, well, Bernie Sanders <laughs> is the only, only politician I've ever had any sort of up-close personal contact with on the, on a campaign trail as a citizen because I, he's in Vermont when I spend a lot of the summer in Vermont and I see him around and I've always thought like, he's not a very good retail campaigner, but there is a certain, there's a certain irritable charm to him, I guess. Just one final word on this. Does Bernie Sanders kill the Martin O'Malley campaign or is Martin O'Malley still going to just like keep plugging away at his 1%, 3%, whatever he's at? I think he can, there's no downside for him to plugging away. I mean, he raises his his stretcher. 
He um, builds chits with party leaders, which means that even if he never is able to run again, he's got connections in these states, which means future Democratic candidates might come to him. His problem is he's neither fish nor fowl. He's not the beloved person on the left. He's not the kind of can get things done person that Hillary Clinton is. So he's kind of stuck in the middle. But he's not harming. I don't think he's harming himself in any way. Um, If you care about ideas and are not otherwise engaged and it's not a brutal, ugly fight that like tears at your soul, which it hasn't become yet, then it's probably not a bad way to spend 16 months. Hmm. It's not like he's not running for anything soon. It's sort of like there's no no downside and there's quite a bit of potential upside. So why not? Yeah. Right. All right. Let's go to cocktail chatter. It's like a sabbatical. Yeah. (laughs) So if Martin O'Malley were here and you're like, Martin, you're not doing very much. Let's have a talk. What pungent detail of world history or current events would you share with him, John? So my uh, what I would share about him is that about two years from now, after he's done with his presidential adventure and maybe hasn't gotten the nomination and won, he and I could take a stroll over a bridge that's being built in, um, is it Amsterdam, I think? Yes. Yeah. Over a canal in Amsterdam that will be totally created by a printer. A 3D printer is going to create this bridge, and it's going to create it out of little drops of molten lead, and it's a gorgeous-looking printer. I mean, it's a gorgeous-looking bridge that it will create, but they will basically this, – this printer, it's really – it's basically more like a robot, but they will put it, like, at the edge of the one side of the bridge, and the arms will conspire in a way to put these little drops of molten lead precisely and they will all ultimately span this little space there's a picture of it david is looking at it now and it's a beautiful little bridge and it will be created entirely by this 3d printer which is um a robot but i mean i guess a 3d printer is a kind of a robot anyway i think that's going to be really cool when it's finally done martin o'malley you have a date with john dickerson to walk over a bridge in Amsterdam. So, and here's a little description. It works like a train, except instead of running along existing tracks, it can actually print out its own tracks as it goes along. An additive printing technology that is more like a weld than like welding than squirting out drops of plastic means that the tracks can go in any direction, not just horizontally, but vertically and diagonally as well. Hmm. So it can move, you know, in all kinds of different spaces. All right. The self-assembling bridge. Yeah, that's a much better way to put it. Jamel, what's your chatter? I would invite Martin O'Malley to watch a 15-hour documentary about the history of film. He has time. He has time. He has time. time. He has time. He's got got nothing to do. Um, (laughs) It's on Netflix. It's called The Story of Film. Uh, It is quite literally 15 hours long, 15 episodes, one hour each, uh, spanning the very beginnings of film in the late 19th century to the present and sort of hypothetical future of film. And if you have any kind of even passing interest in... uh, you know, not just the actual movies and plots and stories, but the cinematography, the development of film technology, the different ways in which directors have borrowed from each other to, to sort of reflect reality, reflect dreams, reflect unconscious states. Uh, it's a fascinating and interesting documentary. It's been uh, really engaging for me as someone who loves film and who watches quite a bit of movies, uh, but who has never really ever formally studied film or cinematography. Great. That's awesome. Was there some sort of early uh, early film that you came across now that you're, you think, oh, my God, I've got to see this movie because it looks like it was so incredible? Yes. 1906, whatever. 
uh, not that early, uh, but certainly in the 30s and 40s era, um, and even the 50s. And so what's interesting about the documentary is he focuses a lot on international film. And so it's not just America or Western Europe. It's Iran and Korea and China and Japan um, and Africa. And one film that he kind of references is a... I want to say 50s uh, Kurosawa film, one of his lesser known ones called High and Low or Heaven and Hell about uh, a businessman who has his son kidnapped and is trying to get him back. And it seems like kind of like standard plot, but it's just an utterly captivating movie, um, like full of tension, the kind of thing that uh, seems really slow. It's like two hours and 20 minutes and there are long stretches where there's not really any action happening. But during this period, uh, he just builds so much tension and communicates so much of the story and the mental states of the characters through staging. Um, and it's really cool. Awesome. My chatter. So Martin O'Malley, like me, is probably feeling the, the end of Game of Thrones. He's like, I've lost the plot. And I just want to recommend, I've read, um, I've had, I've just had two of the best plotted books I've read in a very long time. And I just want to share them because they're massive. They will, they are, will take your summer and you will be so happy with it. One is Lonesome Dove. Have you yeah. read have you ever read that? Larry McMurtry. Yeah. Yeah, I read part of it. For, at uh, UVA, actually, as a part of American Studies. You read that? Jamel and it's about So it's about, uh, it's about a cattle drive in late 19th century from Texas up to Montana. It's amazing. It is amazing. And it's, it's one of those books where the, the perspective taking is incredible. It's told from the perspective of a whole bunch of different people very subtly. It's actually not unlike Game of Thrones in that there are deaths that come to characters you don't expect to die – suddenly, dramatically. It's a wonderful book. I cannot recommend that book highly enough. And then um, I'd never read Neil Stevenson before, and I just read Seven Eves, which is his new novel about, it's about the, the end of humanity. But it's, uh, it's an also an amazing, huge book, which if you take to the beach and you, you like a sci-fi uh, physics story, it, it will, I, I gobbled it up in a week. I, I probably was reading 200 pages a night because it's about a million pages long. Have you read him? Have you read Neil Stevenson? I haven't, actually. My appetite for long, thick works of fiction, it's very low. Long, thick works of, thick works of history, I can totally do. But fiction, I just get kind of bored. I think because you're such like a nerd boy. You're like, you, that you didn't pick up that stuff? You're not like a sci-fi nerd boy? Now, I, again, the, all the sci-fi work I, I, I like a lot is like tops 300 pages. Comic books. Also comic, comic books. In comic form. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're, you're 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 like overplaying. You're like, oh, I've, I'm I'm such a nerd, but really, you, you don't have the endurance. <laughs> you're, like a, you're like a nerd sprinter. I am I am a nerd sprinter. Yeah. <laughs> Ultra marathoning plots over here. Our intern is Tark Barrett. Our producer is Mike Volo. Managing producer is Joel Meyer. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. The Gabfest is part of the Panoply Network, about which there was a story in the New York Times this week. Did you guys see? There was a story about Panoply and the rise of podcasts in the New York Times. It was great. A lot of nice quotes about Panoply. I don't think we were referenced, but Panoply in general. P-A-N-O-P-L-Y. P-A-N-O-P-L-Y, or iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is Slate.com slash Gabfest. Our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash Gabfest. And our Twitter feed is at Slate Gabfest. Subscribe on iTunes and come to our live show at uh, Slate.com slash DC on July 29th. For John Dickerson and Jamel Bowie, I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week. Hey, guys. 
guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> 